0: Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Francesco Cavatorta. Francesco is Professor of Political Science at Laval University, Quebec City in Canada. He's the author of a number of books and articles, including Civil Society Activism Under Authoritarian Rule, Salafism After the Arab Awakening, Political Parties in the Arab World, political science research in the Middle East and North Africa, civil society and democratization in the Arab world, the list goes on, and also the quite exciting Unfinished Arab Spring, Microdynamics of Revolts Between Change and Continuity, coming out in April this year. Francesco, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today.
1: Thank you very much, Simon.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on, Francesco. I'm really looking forward to talking through all of these these different projects that you've got. I mean, it seems like you've written on just about everything there is to, to reflect on in the Middle East. So I'm looking forward to hearing your your sort of knitting together of all of these different things. But um, perhaps we can start, Francesco, just by um, me asking my normal first question. of How did you get interested in, in working on the Middle East, please?
1: Um, I suppose I got interested... In the Middle East by kind of accident, really. Uh, My interest was always in kind of international relations. And um, uh, in particular, I was interested in uh, looking at the international environment and how it might have shaped processes of regime change. I was growing up uh, at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, So there was a lot of interest in, in the process of democratization then. And I was doing my MA, and a lot of people were looking at, obviously, you know, East European cases, Latin American cases, African cases, and no one was looking at process of regime change in the Middle East. And 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 I always thought that maybe there would be something interesting in that because in the late eighties, there were at least two regimes that seemed to change quite substantially: so, uh, Tunisia in nineteen eighty seven with the arrival of Ben Ali. Uh, uh, in power, and then, most notably, I suppose, Algeria, uh, where a more genuine process of democratization began to take place in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And what I wanted to do was to see whether there might have been something, you know, to say about how international variables shaped those two processes. <clears throat> Interesting. Interesting. And so the idea was not so much to look at the Middle East; it was more of a kind of a case study that was different from what I, I suppose what everybody else was
0: doing. Sure. you
1: know, kind of. I chose as a way to differentiate myself from my from my peers. Right. And then when I started with the PhD, I kind of liked the project even more, and I did a so my PhD thesis was on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, when you study, you know, a case like Algeria, you inevitably have to get into. The, the domestic politics of, 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 of the place. And then there are themes that come out from that that might apply to other countries in the region. And then you begin to get kind of interested in that kind of stuff. And all of a sudden, I suppose I moved from international relations to uh, comparative politics of the Middle East. And by the time I was about to be done, um, a couple of years before I was about to be done uh, with my PhD, uh, 9-11... Uh, happened. And there was huge demand for expertise on the Middle East. And back home in, in Dublin, I think there's only two or three people
0: <laughs> Yeah.
1: that. Uh, 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 Vincent Durk is one of them. Maybe you have him on one of your podcasts. Oh, we have indeed. Yes. <laughs> there you go. And so that was kind of the, 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 uh, the start, of suppose, of my career and my genuine interest in, in, in Middle East politics
0: fantastic that's really interesting to, to hear that sort of by accident but Francesca what was it that, that prompted your interest in, in international relations
1: um, I was always interested in international politics and I was always interested on how I suppose uh, domestic politics to a certain extent in in, in in smaller nations in nations that are not so powerful uh, actually get shaped by the politics of Big powers. I was always interested in, in 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 that particular in that particular dynamic, in trying to understand, uh, uh, in fact, the extent to which uh, the foreign policies of large countries of large nation states influence the domestic politics of of smaller states. I was always interested in that. I suppose coming from. Well, really, from two different countries that are not that powerful, uh, 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 Italy and and and, and Ireland. Uh, I guess that that kind of shaped as well my interest a bit. You know uh, mm. how how do smaller countries get um, caught in the middle sometimes of, of 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 the foreign policy of big countries? And the Middle East seemed to me at the time a, a particularly interesting case because, well, no one was looking at it really. And no one was looking at, it at
0: the time through those particular kind of lenses, you know. Sure, okay, that's that's interesting. I, I can see some of that interest continuing throughout your your work after that. But maybe before we get on to that, Francesco, can I can I ask you what do you uh, what do you recall from your first trip to the region then, as someone who wasn't necessarily directly interested in it specifically, but became interested. Uh, as you went along. What do you recall from that first trip, and, and uh, where was it?
1: I, uh, my first trip was on, uh, it was in Morocco. Okay. In, oof, I, I, I'll have to think back now. Let's say many, many, many years ago.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and it was not a particular shock, I have to say. Uh, it was not a cultural shock, really. It was not a language shocked that much either, because uh, in Morocco, French is quite widespread, so I kind of got away with it. Uh, um, and a lot of stuff was actually quite familiar from, from, from my upbringing when I was younger in, in, in Italy. Um, you know, cafes, full of men, um, talking, usually, uh, a lot of hanging about, uh, a lot of interesting politics from ordinary citizens. Uh, uh, which is maybe something that we have kind of lost in in, in, in a way. Um, I, I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it immensely. I I, I was invited uh, uh, to participate in a conference, and uh, I enjoyed it immensely. That's how I kind of got in touch with local researchers, and then and then from then on, I always enjoyed going back to the region, and then later on, I enjoyed living in 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 the region, obviously, um, but. I don't think I have the presumption to understand how ordinary citizens yeah. actually lived or live now uh, uh, in those in those in those countries. I think you always have to be aware of of your privilege in 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 a way, and I think I was always aware of that. And so, you know, I never try to fit in because I don't think you actually yeah. can, given that you have so many privileges going for you in a way.
0: Yeah, of course. And I want to pick up on that a bit later on, if I may, in terms of the, the work that you've done on, on methodology and fieldwork and, and the book you contributed to with Janine Clark. So yeah. I'd like to pick up on that in a bit. But I'm, I'm curious, Francesco, you, you've got this this comparativist agenda running through much of what you do, but it seems that it's comparativist in terms of a focus on democracy and civil society. Would that be fair to say?
1: I think it would be. I think democracy, civil society, and political parties are what uh, have always been my my overarching interest, I suppose. Um, and I, I think if there is one theme that I've always uh, 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 kind of tried to um, to bring out is to try to argue that the region, in many ways, is not as exceptional as it might seem from the outside and and also from the inside. I mean, I think there's a lot of people working on the region and people from the region who think that the Middle East is somewhat exceptional when it comes to political phenomena. I don't really buy into that. And so I've always tried to work on stuff that tended to make the opposite point that a lot of the dynamics that we see in the Middle East are dynamics that are, either occurring at the same time somewhere else or that uh, occurred just very recently somewhere else, and therefore that there is not something that is particularly exceptional in in, in in many ways. And that's why I chose civil society activism, I suppose, and political parties and broader notions of democratization. Um, and, and, and so I think maybe if there is one theme that runs through... Uh, all that I've done is, is, is that particular work, to try to argue against uh, uh, exceptionalism. I don't really buy into that. I'm, I'm aware that there are cultural specificity, and there's always country specificities, and that's true for everybody yeah. in the Middle East. But at the same time, I do think that politics in many ways works in similar ways uh, uh, um, across, across the globe, really.
0: Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly sympathetic to that point of view, and I've had similar conversations with with many scholars, including scholars from the region, who argue that it is a it is an exceptional region, and that we should view it as such. But could you um, could you just support the the claim that you've made a little bit, Francesco? Can you just give us a couple of examples that would would support this thesis that look politics has similar characteristics across different different case studies?
1: Well, I can give you a couple. Yeah, sure. I, I've been working recently a lot on political parties. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people obviously believe, and in many ways rightly so, that political parties don't matter very much in, in, in the Middle East and never really mattered. But I think that through our work, we, and I'm not on my own here, I, I, I always like to collaborate, so, so it's not, not my own insight necessarily. But I I think we found that, in fact, in, in, in terms of, for instance, the... Uh, Inclusion-moderation hypothesis, that is something that has happened elsewhere in in the past, that is still happening, for instance, in some cases even in Europe, you know, uh, uh, just as it happens in in the Middle East for Islamist parties. Um, The fact that there is a tendency in the Middle East, when a party comes to power, I'm thinking of Turkey, for instance, to become the dominant party, uh, you know, so I've done for how the dominant party behaves, Um, talking about the AKP here. I think you can see similar trends that existed in, in in Japan and in Italy, who had for a long time a dominant party that kind of seemed to suggest that they were uh, exceptional in many ways. Well, it turns out that they were not exceptional because a dominant parties behave in a similar way. And if a mm. dominant party kind of behaves in a similar way in Turkey, in Japan, and Italy, then maybe what happens in Turkey is not that exceptional. You know, We can find Uh, comparisons uh, 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 elsewhere. The publications of electoral manifestos, you know, for instance, that's that's something that political parties in the Arab world have done and do. Uh, Why would they do that? Well, maybe because they actually are more programmatic and interested in getting the uh, vote of citizens than we think that they normally are. And this is exactly what parties all over the globe usually do. They publish a particular Manifesto. They might not necessarily believe in it. They might not necessarily think it's going to bring in votes, but it's certainly something that they do because they might think, well, this gives me some sort of legitimacy and some sort of credibility. I have policy proposals. And all parties do that. And so my research project is on the political manifestos of Salafists. Mm. Uh, you know, who would have thought that they'd have a political program? Well, it turns out that they actually do. And they publish it and they try to advertise it. And then they have policy proposals in them. Uh, just like parties uh, uh, everywhere else, so this idea that you know politics functions necessarily in a different way and it's exceptional, um, in some respects that might be the case, but in many other respects it, it is not the case. And the same with civil society activism. You know sure. there is all sorts of civil society activism, protests, and and so on across the Middle East. And similar protests have characterised uh, uh, activism elsewhere elsewhere too. Uh, maybe there's also, on my part, the geographical bias, as I said, you know, in the sense that having uh, lived uh, uh, a good chunk of my life uh, when I was younger in, in Italy, um, I can actually see some of the same dynamics, maybe because we're neighbors with the Middle East. So that, hmm, yeah. then maybe that is something that, that, that kind of plays uh, on you uh, uh, a bit. You know, I still remember the Unfortunately, for me, the early nineteen seventies—you know—all uh, uh, the uh, uh, struggles for women's rights uh, in Italy. I think until nineteen seventy-five, in the in the civil code, the woman was considered property of a man. Uh, this is nineteen seventy-five. Wow! So, yeah, know, uh, I was alive then. Um, so the idea is that you know uh, similar dynamics that affected Italy then, in a way in that particular respect, affect maybe the Middle East uh, uh, now or affected it 20, 25 years ago. This is the kind of stuff that I was always interested in and that is why my, my contention is always that, you know, the Middle East is not as exceptional as sure. as, as, as uh, we are sometimes elect to believe
0: well thank you for sharing that and and for anyone wanting to to get a better handle on some of the points that you're making here Francesco I really would would point them in the direction of political parties in the Arab world the edited collection that that you had published I think in 2018 with Edinburgh which is yeah. a wonderful collection of essays
1: yeah it, 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 it's, a, it's a nice it's a nice departure from uh, the way usually parties are studied in in the Middle East, and I'm very thankful and grateful to Liz Storm uh, at uh, at Exeter University, because we it was a collaboration between the two of us. She was uh, uh, really the the kind of the driving force behind it, having worked on political parties for longer than I had. And to all the contributors, you know, to 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 the book, who did such a wonderful a wonderful job. And if I can plug the next one, I have a forthcoming uh, handbook. Always edited with uh, Lise and with another uh, researcher, Valeria Resta, from the University of Rome, on political parties in the Arab world. It's a much larger project. It's a Routledge handbook. It has over 30 chapters. We examine all sorts of different themes. Um, So that's something that uh, I care a lot about, because, as I said, I think it is the demonstrations, once more, that, that, that a lot of the dynamics that we see in party politics today in the Middle East can be linked to broader debates that we have and that we've had in the comparative politics literature more broadly.
0: Sure. that's really interesting to know about this broader handbook. When should we expect that, Francesco? Uh,
1: Well, we should be submitting the whole manuscript at the end of March, and then I'm pretty sure that Routledge will take uh, a good few months before (laughs) they, they publish it. Ideally, it should be out in early 2021.
0: Fantastic. Well, that's something to look forward to, I guess. Francesco, you've done a lot of collaborative work with people to go alongside the the wonderful scholarship that you've done on your own. But can you tell us a bit about what what's driving you to do your your collaborative work, please?
1: Um, I think there's maybe three things. The first one is that I I suppose I like to learn from others, and so collaborating with other scholars, whether they are you know more experienced than me or less experienced than me or similarly experienced, I suppose that I always learn something, particularly because a lot of my collaborations are with people who are not necessarily in political science, or if they're in political science, they're not necessarily comparativists. And if they're comparatives, maybe they're not comparativist the same way that, that I am. And therefore, I always learn something. And I think this kind of uh, hybridity brings out uh, more interesting Research more interesting results, and it's more fun to 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 do that. Sure. The second yeah. reason is because I think you get more stuff out. So if you have you know good ideas and uh, uh, or or not so good ideas, you can you know bounce them off other people, you know, and 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 that usually improves the uh, the final outcome of what you, of what you're doing. So I think that there is this idea of confrontation but not a negative confrontation just a, you know a confrontation over over ideas over how to interpret empirical evidence over theoretical assumptions and therefore in that case i think the piece that you are working on is is, is better because there is this exchange uh, behind it yeah and the third sure reason, i think it's because it's more efficient um, i think usually if you're working with somebody else uh, then you feel a certain responsibility to deliver on time to do things on time to do things more quickly and better because somebody else is counting on you to to do it and if you are kind of inherently lazy or unfortunately lazy I I'm unfortunately lazy uh, uh, then it's a good way to uh, not be lazy and not to give in to your worst impulses
0: yeah sure yeah i can see that the merits of that <laughs> Although I,
1: I it be to watch football every single day on television.
0: Well, yeah, unless your football team isn't doing particularly well, but um, we'll, we'll gloss over not, for that now.
1: Yeah, um, well, let's
0: not go there. Let's no, let's let's not. I mean, I I do want to cast doubt on on this sort of suggestion that you are perhaps lazy. I mean, you the <laughs> the huge amount of work and knowledge that you've produced is. It's absolutely incredible, and it's so high quality. and we could talk all day about about your articles, and we've we've dwelt on the books a little bit because we just don't have time to deal with all of your articles. so So I commend you for that that huge amount of knowledge that's been produced.
1: Thank
0: you. You're too kind. No, not at all. As I
1: said, a lot of the merit for
0: that goes to the people I work with. <laughs> sure. I, I want to talk a little bit, Francesco, about Salafism, if I may. Yes. And sure, yeah. it's it's one of these things that's that's sort of typically referred to. Perhaps quite lazily, without real uh, sort of knowledge and awareness of of what's really at stake. So, can you talk a little bit about what Salafism is to you, please, and 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 the book as well?
1: Yeah.
0: After the Arab uprisings, I mean, what's what's at stake for Salafis after twenty eleven? Would you say? I,
1: I, it's a very good question, and it's something that. I've I've thought a lot about because uh, obviously since 2011 I've been working a lot on on Salafism with a colleague of mine who's uh the University of Ghent uh Fabio Merone and uh, actually I, I I want to thank him for getting him getting me into studies of of Salafism because we were working together on Tunisia my intention after the Arab Spring and my intention was that we work simply to trace how uh the process of change and internal change in the Nakda was taking place, and how that was shaping the Tunisian transition, and obviously, conversely, how the Tunisian transition was shaping the politics of Nakda and of, you know, let's say, mainstream uh, Islamists. And then Fabio said, "Well, well, actually, you know, there's something else going on here. There's all these Salafi groups and Salafi individuals, Salafi sheikhs that are Kind of on the scene. Maybe we should be looking at that too. And I said, Well, sure, yeah, no, let's look at them too. And from then, we kind of got we kind of got hooked uh, 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 into that because we found that kind of street politics and this kind of more revolutionary politics that Salafists were were subscribing to was a bit more interesting than the politics of. Uh, regime change in 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 Tunisia, which of course was interesting, but but in a way it was kind of uh, very similar again to processes of transitions to democracy that yeah. had occurred elsewhere. Um, and so we got we, we started focusing on that, and then obviously by uh, interacting with them and, and and looking at what they were doing and studying them, we came across the work of Salafism of other uh, scholars. And we decided that, you know, maybe we should bring all these scholars working on Salafism together to do, to do a book, too. And Fantastic. And see what the different experiences were in different countries, because obviously Salafis are not only different in terms of how they approach politics, or how they do not approach politics, uh, but also the constraints in different countries um, lead them, well, leads them to behave differently, really. That's, that, that's, that's the idea. And so we got this comparative project going with some of the most notable names in the studies of, of, of Salafism, and I think for them, for Salafis in general across the region, um, I think the the ta- the challenge has been how to deal with revolutionary politics because yeah. revolutionary politics in many ways is antithetical to what Salafis want out of politics. You know, they want, uh, in a way, they want peace and quiet. Um, uh, uh, and 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 this was a huge challenge for them it split them even more uh along national lines but also along i suppose ideological lines on how to contend with revolutionary politics some of them went enthusiastically into uh into political parties some others stayed out of the game altogether arguing that this was a bad idea some others decided to uh, act within civil society and became revolutionary actors in a way, but without using uh, violence, as was the case of Tunisia for a few years. And others decided that this, the moment was ripe for, you know, kind of an armed insurrection and undermine uh, the Arab state and finally create uh, the caliphate. So they all went into very similar directions. I think the challenges have not changed that that much. You know, it, it is for them how to contend with, um, the revolutionary broth that they're swimming in, in many ways. You know, I realize that now authoritarianism has kind of uh, 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 taken hold again everywhere. But the reality is that the return of authoritarianism, I don't think, has eliminated the reasons why there were protests and near revolutions and revolutions uh, across the region. And I think Salafis, in a way, still have to deal with that. Sure, it is true that the moment the vast majority have gone back to... Uh, Quietism have gone back to Dawah, gone back to proselytizing, they've gone back to their charities, they've gone back to religious work. But inevitably uh 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 they will have to 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 decide how to deal with uh, uh with the climate that is around them, and it's a climate of profound popular dissatisfaction for what's going on.
0: Sure. And Francesco, you talk a bit about the comparative dimensions at play. I wonder, can you just elaborate on some of the structural conditions that that either curtail or enable Salafist actors to operate, please?
1: Well, I suppose if you look at countries like Tunisia, in mean, the period between 2011 and 2013, when they were banned, and particularly when Nassar Sharia was banned, uh, you could see that where there was... Uh, a sort of liberal democracy being built, um, as Tunisia, I think, legitimately is, whether it works well or not, that's a kind of different discussion. But institutionally, uh, uh, it became a free society uh, uh, quite quickly. Salafis were, were, you know, were able to mobilize, were able to recruit, were they, they were able to hold uh, meetings to create their own structures. I think that they benefited from the freedom that they enjoyed. And therefore, they were the living contradiction of Salafism. You know, you enjoy the benefits of individual freedoms or freedom of speech or freedom of assembly and so on, while at the same time arguing that all this is, is, is not really a good idea. And uh, these are very different conditions from the one in, uh, in, in Jordan, for instance, or in, or in Morocco, where authoritarian structure had remained in place and where therefore Salafists had to decide, well, we either side with the king or we just keep quiet. We don't, you know, kind of try to enter politics or invade in a way society as Tunisian society felt, you know, when the Salafists arrived on the scene, Tunisian society felt invaded by by Salafists. And it is true that they were present uh, uh, there. So, you know, and then again, that is different from Egypt, where in fact they mostly chose the institutional, uh, political institutional way, so they created successful political parties, because they had already kind of, in a way, invaded society. They were already Mm. present in society with their organizations, associations, and so on. So I think, you know, when one looks at Salafis, there is their ideological level. There are their different ideas on how they should approach politics, and they are divided over that. But also, it's important to kind of realize that some of them can be quite pragmatic, and therefore, they operate differently according to the constraints in place in uh, in each context. That, by the way, is also true of Salafis that are not in the Middle East. There are Salafis that are, for instance, in in Europe. You know, there's sure, great yeah. stuff done on Salafis in France by Mohamed Ali Adraoui and Samir Angar, two French scholars who've done a lot of work on that. And now they argue that, in fact, you know, uh, the place where they are and the political, institutional and social constraints in place where they are do matter quite a bit on uh, how they behave and what kind of political choices they uh, uh, they end up making.
0: Sure. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think that's really interesting. And and of course, those structural constraints or enabling forces that, that impact on Salafis, they also impact on a range of other groups as well that, that you've touched on and, and continue yeah. to explore, particularly with your work on the Arab uprisings.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I, again, I think that the, the constraints in place uh, uh, do matter for all sorts of different uh, for all sorts of different groups not only not only for the salafis and they do influence the choices that then actors make which again I think brings us back to the original point I was making at the beginning about exceptionalism mm. which is well you know these actors turns out they're all quite you know pragmatic and and, and, and quite rational in, in in a way just like uh, uh, the actors we usually examine in comparative politics are quite rational and and, and quite quite pragmatic they decide, what to do based, yes, on ideology, beliefs, uh, organisational uh, strength or organisational weakness, but also, you know, what are the opportunities that are around us or the costs that are around us? And those costs and opportunities are provided by the nature of the political system and the nature of the interactions with the other, with the other actors.
0: Yeah, of course. Now, we've taken up so much time, Francesco, but I think um, if I may ask one final question... I think we've got to an interesting point in the discussion that, that some of your other work comes in quite nicely. I mean, not only are we, when we're researching particular groups and actors, have to look at the structures that are constraining, enabling, etc., those groups, but also we need to reflect on our own positionality. And that's where I, I think your work with Janine on the, um, the political science research in Middle East and North Africa methodological and ethical challenges is so very important so can you just tell us a little bit about that and some of the the challenges that that you've faced and overcome or perhaps struggled to overcome in in uh, doing yeah. your own research please
1: oh yeah no i i i i think the project uh, that, I, that i did with janine and and again you know i would like to publicly now thank uh, uh, janine for for, <laughs> for being on board with that we we, we had been talking about it uh, for quite some time, and we finally got around doing it and we have to thank as well all the contributors that were wonderful. Um, I, I, I think what we wanted to do was to provide a guide to, uh, I suppose younger researchers in a way who have to kind of go and do fieldwork in the region. But also it was broader than that because I think a lot of the chapters are a reminder to all of us of the challenges that we face and that we not necessarily necessarily think about. And one of them is indeed, Positionality. I mean, one who, who we are, uh, the values we have, uh, um, what we represent, what our passport even represents uh, yeah. uh, matters when you when you when you spend time spend time in the field, um, and and I think there's quite a few challenges, particularly but for everybody, but particularly for, you know, uh, Western researchers writing on the Middle East. There's, there's there's also a very kind of negative tradition of Western researchers writing on the Middle East, you know, through kind of stereotypes and Orientalism who, uh, kind of provide some sort of guide, I suppose, to scholars uh, uh, that, that they have to be mindful, you know, of, of who they are, who they interact with, the kind of structures that are in place that you have to deal with, you know, what to do. Uh, in an authoritarian system, you know, some things might just seem like very counterintuitive. They just very kind of obvious as well. But, um, but I think it's important to remember that that we are dealing ultimately with with other human beings, and and we have to be aware that we are usually uh, uh, more often than not in a position of power and privilege. Mm. And how we deal with that is is important as well for the outcomes of our of our research when we do ethnography, for instance, how close do we get to to people? i mean do we simply want information or are we you know kind of uh, uh, research tourists? you know we we go into a i don't know into a, a a refugee camp and and we simply talk to people and we don't really care because all we want is is results. There was a wonderful article years ago on jadalia uh, 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 about that and and it is true you know think we have to be mindful how we balance the need to have data and, and empirics for what we want to do, because that is our job. But the way in which we extract those data and those interviews, I think I think is important. And I think that we have to be as upfront, as honest as, as we possibly can with the people we want to talk to, the people we want to investigate. Yeah. And at the same time, we have to be aware that we usually are in a position of power and privilege. And this changes for each researcher, you know. Uh, uh, sure,
0: because, yeah, of course. Uh,
1: you know who I am. I'm I'm a white, Western man. Okay, there's nothing I can do about that. That 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 is it. That gives me maybe, a different perspective and therefore different, uh, power relations. As if you are maybe a you know a second generation, uh, Moroccan, but living in in Germany and consider yourself actually German, as one of the researchers in the book actually is. You know. How does this change? My name is quite clearly Italian; it cannot really be mistaken for anything else. Um, but if your name is uh, Malik, uh, you know, but you consider yourself German, how would you be considered in Jordan, for instance? I don't know. So there's yeah. always that kind of relation that, that needs to be at least thought out uh, before you go and while you're and while you're there in 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 the field, I suspect.
0: Sure. Well, Francesco, thank you so much for sharing these reflections. It's been wonderful to talk with you. I've I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from from not only your books, your articles, but also from this conversation. So thank you again for giving up your time. I really appreciate it.
1: No, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to uh, to say uh, uh, to say all of this. So thanks very much to you, Simon.
0: No, the pleasure is mine, Francesco, and as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.